it's a classic sermon illustration. It's emotional. It's dramatic. And it's a story that will break your heart. Maybe you've heard it. Let's watch it together. of a drawbridge operator who decided one day to take his son to work. The bridge, which supported train rails, was heavy and often kept in the up position, for it was quicker to lower than to raise. train coming towards the bridge and reached for the lever that would lower the span. At that moment, his eyes diverted to find his son. To his horror, he watched as the ball his son was playing with bounced into view and then rolled down beneath the ballast at the bridge. The son quickly followed. Both ball and boy disappeared into the heavy gears that controlled the lowering of the bridge. He yelled as loud as he could, but there was no response. The train continued to forge ahead. He had no time to leave his post, rescue his son, and return to lower the bridge. If he did not begin to lower the bridge in the next few seconds, hundreds of people would lose their lives. He had but those same few seconds to make a decision. Surrender the life of his son for the lives of many, or allow the innocent to perish. With tears streaming down his face and the roar of the approaching train drowning out his screams, he threw the lever forward, lowering the bridge. He watched the train as it passed and saw the people through the windows, reading, laughing, talking, staring, oblivious of the sacrifice that was just made for them. Powerful story, isn't it? It's often used to describe the sacrificial love of God. And it's not without its parallels. It's true that God could not save us without killing His Son. The heart of the Father did twist in grief as He watched His Son die. A horrible death. And it's sad yet true that the innocent have hurried past the scene of the cross, oblivious to the sacrifice that just saved them from certain death. However, there's one inference in this story that is woefully in need of correction. But before we get to that, I want to talk with you for a few moments about this topic of sacrifice. You see, sacrifice is the heart of what the Bible is all about. It is the essence of God's redemptive plan. And today, as I'm facing surgery on Tuesday, I wanted this final sermon before my medical leave to address the core of Christianity. As someone put it, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing in Christianity is such a vitally essential truth for us to grasp. 
And so I'm going to do my best this morning to make sure that each and every person here understands the most central, fundamental, and material part of Christian faith. For many of you, today is going to be a review. It's going to reinforce what you already know, and there's great value in that. This lesson will help you to feel more confident in your faith and more confident in sharing your faith with others. For others of you, this is going to be clarifying. Maybe some confusion or doubt has created a fog in your mind. This lesson is going to clear away, I hope, some of that fog, bringing definition and focus back to your faith. For still others, I predict that today's lesson is going to hit you like a bolt of lightning. and It's going to take your breath away. And you're going to say, no way. How could I have missed this? How could I have been so blind to this for so many years? And finally, for some of you who are searching, those of you who are investigating Christianity, this study is going to lay the foundation for you. It's going to help you grasp the very essence of Christian faith. Now to get us headed in the direction of understanding the core of Christianity, I want to introduce a theological term to you. (laughs) Substitutionary atonement. Write it down there in your notes, would you? Big word, I know. Substitutionary atonement. From a biblical viewpoint, the whole concept of sacrifice is wrapped up in substitutionary atonement. Now let me see if I can unpack that just a bit for you. The word atonement means satisfaction, reparation or expiation made for a wrong or injury, propitiation. In in a just society where there are laws and consequences to breaking those laws. We understand that atonement is the price that must be paid for wrongdoing. You're speeding down the road, the policeman pulls you over, you get a ticket, and you have to pay a fine for breaking the law. You commit a crime and you receive a jail sentence to make atonement for that crime that you've committed. The other word is the word substitute. One who or that which takes the place of or serves in lieu of another, a replacement or alternate. A substitute is simply someone who steps in for someone else. An example would be a substitute teacher. Or or perhaps an athlete who subs for another player when he or she is injured so the game can go on. So when you put the two together... Atonement plus substitute, or substitutionary atonement. You have the core of Christianity. And the core idea of Christianity is different than the core idea of any other world religion. This is what sets Christian faith apart from any and all other faiths. And in that light, I want you to understand how the principle of sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, has worked throughout history as God's redemptive plan unfolded in the pages of Scripture. It all begins with the animal skins. It all began in the Garden of Eden. 
I'm sure that most of us are familiar with the story of creation in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after creating all the plants and animals, God created people, Adam and Eve, and placed them in the garden. And Genesis 1 and verse 26 tells us that God told them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. If I could paraphrase phrase that just a bit, God told Adam and Eve, have a ball. (laughs) Name the animals, tend the garden, have pleasure in each other and savor relating to me. I've created a perfect paradise for you to enjoy. Then God went on to say, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, we know the rest of the story, don't we? No sooner had God asked Adam and Eve to respect his sovereignty than the evil one came along and tempted them. And he said, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So they bought Satan's lie and they ate from the tree. And the minute they ate... They knew they had sinned. They felt guilty and ashamed. They felt estranged from God. They felt overwhelmed by remorse. And they tried to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves and their sinfulness by hiding from God. Later that day, God showed up in the garden to talk with them about what they had done. All heaven held its breath. Adam and Eve held their breath. I mean, what would God do? Would He kill them for their disobedience? After all, He had warned them, you will surely die. Or would God say, just kidding. (laughs) You can disobey me any time. doesn't really bother me. I'll ignore my own words. I'll suspend the sentence. No problem. Well, what happened? If I could paraphrase, God said, you did exactly what I asked you not to do, so I'm going to do exactly what I told you I would do. I must be true to my word. I cannot suspend the sentence. I'm a holy God. Sin must be atoned for. We are going to to satisfy the demands of justice right here and right now. And Adam and Eve thought to themselves, "Uh uh-oh, we're done. But notice what it tells us, Genesis 3.21. In fact, let's read this verse out loud together. Would you read it with me? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, most people read right over that and don't see the significance of it. But let's stop here long enough to see how important this is. After all, how do you get an animal skin? An animal has to die. Don't forget, there hadn't been any death up to this point in history. Can you imagine Adam and Eve standing off to one side while God slays a couple of animals? They'd never heard the shrieks of death before. They had never seen blood flow and get soaked up into the ground. And God kills animals right in front of them, covering Adam and Eve's sin and shame and guilt with their skins. What's going on here? It's the very first glimpse, you see, in the Bible of the core 
of Christianity, substitutionary atonement. The animals are sacrificed for the sin of Adam and Eve. The animals die and Adam and Eve are allowed to go free. Which brings us to the door frames. A little later in history, the Bible records the story of the exodus of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. You've seen the movies. You've read the story. You know it well. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt being treated inhumanely by the Egyptians. God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of bondage. That was no easy task, especially since the Egyptians were not about to allow the Israelites to simply walk away from their captivity. And so God got Pharaoh's attention through a series of ten plagues, moving him from hard-heartedness to willingness, even an anxiousness, to set the Israelites free. And it's the last plague, the plague of the death angel, that is our focus here this morning. God told Moses in Exodus 12 and verse 12, On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment. Simply put, God was going to kill every firstborn son and every firstborn male animal in every household throughout the entire land of Egypt. Now when Moses announced this to the Israelites, he also told them that God had provided a way to escape this judgment. You remember how? Here's in God's own words, Exodus chapter 12, tell the whole community of Israel to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The community must slaughter them at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so Moses got the word out. And some of the Israelites said, no way. God's not going to show up. I'm not going to kill the best lamb in my flock. But most said, okay, I'm going to obey. I'll, I'll take advantage of God's provision for my atonement. And when I read this story, I imagine some father taking his eldest son out to the flock. Hey, Dad, what are we doing? Well, son, we're going to find our very best lamb. What are we going to do with the lamb, Dad? We're going to kill it. (laughs) But why, Dad? What did the lamb do? Nothing, son. But it's going to be your substitute. And when they killed the lamb, I imagine they very humbly and thoughtfully painted some of the lamb's blood on the door frames of their house, indicating their trust and faith in God's plan of substitutionary atonement. The scripture says that the night came when that angel of death appeared. He went to each and every home in Egypt, and every firstborn was killed except for those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses. Tens of thousands of Egyptian households were filled with loud wailing and mourning when they discovered the shocking death of their sons. And there were even a few unbelieving and disobedient Israeli households who cried out, Oh, we should have killed the lamb if only we had believed and obeyed God's plan of substitutionary atonement. Our son would still be alive. 
But there were, of course, a lot of believing and obedient Israeli households who rejoiced for this thing called substitutionary atonement because the lamb took the hit for their family, for their son. Which brings us to the altar. We move on in biblical history and come to the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, the altar upon which animals were sacrificed as burnt offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings to make atonement for the sins of the people. Leviticus 1 verses 2-4 through describes what the father of the patriarch of the family had to do. When any of you brings an offering to the Lord... Bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. He is to offer a male without defect. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. And then having passed his own sins and his family's sins to that animal, the animal would be killed, the blood would be poured out to pay the price for the sin committed, and the animal would be burned on the fire on the altar. Now just imagine what that sacrificial system was like. First at the tabernacle in the wilderness and then later at the temple in Jerusalem. Every time someone sinned, A lie, a hateful thought, a lustful look, a dishonest act. Every single time someone sinned, the demands of justice had to be satisfied. Either the person had to pay the price of his or her own sin and receive God's judgment of death on himself or herself, or he or she had to go out to the flock and choose the best spotless, unblemished lamb he or she could find and bring it to the altar so that it could make substitutionary atonement for him or her. Needless to say, every single day, that line of Israelites was pretty long as they each waited their turn to offer their lamb as a sacrifice for their sin on that altar. And it was in the midst of these daily sacrifices that a prophet named Isaiah predicted something that blew everyone's Mind, I had you turn to Isaiah 53 earlier, so now follow along as I read verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And the Israelites who heard this prophecy said, Whoa, time out! Are you suggesting that someday there's going to be a human sacrifice? Are you suggesting... I mean, you're, you're talking here like this is a human being. And Isaiah answered, That's correct. There's coming a day when God is going to provide the ultimate substitutionary atoner. A day when there will be one cataclysmic sacrifice to satisfy the demands of justice once and for all. And there will never need to be another animal slain. And the people started to wonder, who's this going to be? When will this be? How will this happen? Which brings us to the cross. 
We move on in history of the time of the New Testament. And John the Baptist appeared on the scene in Israel preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he pointed to Jesus and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now believe me, that got everyone's attention. And they began to say among themselves, Could this be the one that Isaiah prophesied about some 700 years earlier? And so Jesus began His ministry. Quite often He would get to one of the points in His talks where He would say something like this, loosely paraphrased, by the way, I am the sacrificial lamb that Isaiah foretold. That the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament foreshadowed. I'm the ultimate substitutionary atoner. And there's coming a time very soon here where I will give my life as a sacrifice to pay the price for each and every person who has ever lived. And of course on a Friday we curiously call good Good for us, not so good for him. Jesus was severely beaten, forced to carry a cross outside Jerusalem. Nails were pounded into his hands and feet, and he bled and he died on that cross for you and for me. And right before he died, Jesus cried out, It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. <laughs> No. He said, it is finished. Literally a banking term. It is paid in full. He was saying that the full and the total price for sin had been paid. Complete atonement had been made. The writer of Hebrews summed it up this way. He sacrificed himself once and for all. The final solution of sin. Everyone has to die once, then face the consequences. Christ's death was also a one-time event, but it was a sacrifice that took away sins forever. Christ made a single sacrifice for us, and that was it. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. By that single offering, He did everything. That needed to be done. It is finished. God's redemptive plan of substitutionary atonement is now complete. Friends, the core of Christianity, as I said earlier, is different from the core idea of every other world religion. You name it Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Scientology. Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever religion you choose other than Christianity, it is based on human effort, good work, self-improvement, getting your own act together. In fact, we could just call it self-atonement. But of course the problem is, how do you ever know if you've done enough? How do you ever know if you're good enough? Well, the core idea of Christianity actually starts with the premise that you and I can never, ever, ever be good enough or do enough. We, in fact, deserve God's judgment and justice. We deserve the death penalty for our sin. But God did not give us what we deserve. No, in His mercy and grace, He provided substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the hit in our place. Jesus paid it all for us. I want you to read this out loud with me. Let's read this together. 
The core idea of Christianity is substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ willingly paying the price of my wrongdoing so that I could be set free. Amen. Let me close with this. Remember the video we watched? The beginning of today's lesson, the story of the bridge engineer and his son. And remember that I said, although there's some wonderful parallels in that touching story, there was one inference that is woefully in need of correction. Here it is. In the story of the little boy and his father, the father's choice to sacrifice his son to save the lives of those on the train was a horrible accident. But in the story of the cross, God's choice to sacrifice His Son's life to save you and me was on purpose. Acts 2.23 reminds us that Jesus' substitutionary atonement was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God carefully planned and deliberately chose for Jesus to die just for you and for me. Substitutionary atonement. The core of Christianity. Let's read these two verses from 1 Peter out loud together as we wrap it up. Jesus personally carried the load of our sins in His own body when He died on the cross so that we can be finished with sin. He died once for the sins of all us guilty sinners, although He Himself was innocent of any sin at any time, that He might bring us safely home to God. Let's pray. God, what can we say? (laughs) Except thank You. What can we offer but our very lives because You offered Your very life for us. I would pray right now that because of what we've learned together today that each one of us would take to heart this message that we would think once again on the atonement that You have offered, the substitute that You have made for us that we would ponder that and carry this with us from this place today with a fresh new look at it. And I would pray this morning for anyone who is listening to this message who may not yet have bowed the knee to Jesus. Anyone who has not said, yes, I will receive that substitutionary atonement for my sin. If there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as his or her personal forgiver and leader of their life, I pray that today they would embrace the Savior and the Lord, Jesus Christ. It is finished. It is paid in full. And that's for everyone who by faith would come. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.